On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group starts Queensryche with the self-titled EP and The Warning. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair on this trip back to our youth. I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory, Tom Corcoran, and Paul Zotter, as we return to the halls of Central Bucks High School West to cover Queensryche, self-titled EP, and The Warning. (laughs) Yeah. I am inordinately pumped to revisit our youth and talk about Queensryche finally. Now, you know, we've Queensryche has been on the list. At least the first part of the Queensryche catalog has been on the list for Progressive Palaver since it was the idea was originally conceived. It's always been there. We just had to get to it. Mm-hmm. We here at the Palaver have certainly a very rich and intimate history with this band, certainly back in the day. We have told the story many, many times on here of the day prior to school, Paul and I, as I remember it, I don't remember who else was was there, but I remember Paul and I sitting at the corner of two of those like bench seat things. And Tom, you appear out of nowhere. (gasps) You got to listen to this. With Operation Mindcrime. I remember I was kind of last on this bus. You guys had been talking about Rage for Order for quite some time before that at band practices. And I had heard about Rage for Order in Queensryche probably for weeks or months before I actually heard it. But the fact of the matter is, Queensryche is and was wonderful. Now, I have maintained my love for Queensryche throughout all of this time. Um, I will go to my grave saying that Rage for Order is one of the greatest albums ever. Actually, Rage for Order and Mindcrime, both absolutely spectacular. But there's something about Rage that just ramps up my experience. Here's the thing, because when when we hatched, when we finally agreed, I'm not going to say we hatched, when we we finally agreed, probably six to eight weeks ago that we were going to do this and we were going to gear up. We were coming out of the hiatus. I felt maybe we needed something to juice us up. And so we were going to do Queensryche out of the hiatus. It was going to be great. Take a little little pause on fish, record some Queensryche. And that's when I started driving back and forth between here and Brian. And I spent a lot of time and destroyed a lot of hearing on that drive going through the Queensryche catalog. And I was just, I was primed and ready to go. But here's the thing, right? Because as much as I loved Queensryche before, having done everything that we have done on Progressive Palaver, you guys are going to get bored of hearing all of this. But it really illustrates some of the influences in Queensryche that I would maybe not have recognized or credited before, including the huge influence of Pink Floyd and sound design mm. and how Queensryche was able to incorporate all that and create something that, in my estimation, transcends the genre. 
you know, even in these very early recordings, you get some of that. And there's mm. there's just so much here. And I just I love it. I can't wait. And it ah oh, it's it, it's just it's gonna be spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. If we were to make a movie of the lobby of our high school and Tom showing up, he would have to be cast by Jack Black. Because the story <laughs> has become that epic. It would take quite the performance to to communicate that. Yeah. It was it was it had to have been like before eight in the morning. It had to have been at like 725 a.m. <laughs> and Tom was running in. His eyes were so wide and he was holding a cassette. A cassette. Right? That's that's the best thing. This tiny little thing in his hands. He was holding it like it was gold. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of remember that. It's one of those things that I think I remember it through you guys telling the story over the years. I definitely had many awakenings riding the bus to school, having my disc man on, or and I guess in this case, my uh, cassette player on. Queensryche really earns its sort of prog metal title. And it, it definitely has depth when you when you listen to a lot of these albums, uh, these these eighties albums, and um, you you really get they they really stay with you. I mean, I I really love these albums in some ways more than I did, you know, because there's really more to find. You know, there's just little nuggets that you find when you're listening to this and years down the line. And some of these albums really do have that depth that we thought we heard when we were younger. And I guess we did hear because, I mean, they really are great albums. I, I would argue that we heard it and we recognized it, but we probably didn't know exactly what it was that was separating this. Uh, that's certainly true for me. Ken, I suspect that you're probably, you were probably in the know the whole time, but that's a suspicion. I was glued to the Metal Shop radio program. So that would have been where I first heard Queen of the Reich. And I was not immediately enthralled or purchasing, and I was just very curious. I was a Maiden fan. And I got to say, one or two years or three years of band development during that period was an epic amount of time because Maiden was essentially two to four years ahead of Queensryche. And they were polished and they were ready and they were accessible and they were amazing. And for me personally, Queensryche was just working up to be made. Is that, is that, is that mean? I, I don't think it's mean. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Tom. The reason why I'm so uh, rudely interrupting you, I just I read this right before we went on, and um, actually, Ken, there's a thing on uh, one of the wiki pages that talks about them actually being in one of their basements playing Iron Maiden and Judas Priest songs covers. They call themselves the Mob or something, and they were right, like a cover. Right. Yeah. yeah, and and I think we've talked about this with with other bands before, right? You know when. When you start out, depending on where you are, a year or two off, and and when you start out from ground zero, yeah, you're a little rough, you're a little unpolished. But I think what um, what I find so amazing about the Queensryche arc is how quickly 
they not only polished, but created their sort of own trajectory. It's, it's stunning to me how quickly they were able to do that. From the self-titled EP to Rage for Order was, what, a matter of a few years. And, and oh. Rage, Rage for Order was, it was and remains just groundbreaking and stunning to me. Fucking epic is what it is. Fucking I, epic. I agree with everything from the Iron Maiden to, to the, the, the arc they've had. But here's some fun stuff. I was so resistant about Queensryche because all I had been exposed to was like Dan and Jay playing a couple of riffs before <laughs> practice. You know, Dan playing like the beginning of New Regal. Yeah. And Jay like drumming along, like you just you just can't even come close to approximating. And like Dan's like singing falsetto, and I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" Like these guys. <laughs> and so I just every time they would do it, I would just roll my eyes. And then one night, I met I met Ken's house in Chalfont, and we were playing cards, and there was this most epic and awesome music playing through his speakers and like after like four songs i just finally said god ken who are we listening to and with no lack of satisfaction he was like it's queen's you asshole <laughs> <laughs> and but ken god bless you because that was like a friday night and you were more than more than happy to lend me your copy of Rage for Order for me to listen to all weekend. Wow. And I and I did. I remember I remember the next day I had an eye doctor. This is crazy. I had an eye doctor's appointment. And that eye doctor was like an hour and 10 minutes away in Rising Sun, like outside of Philly. And I listened to the whole Rage for Order album on the way there and the whole Rage for Order album <laughs> on the way back. And it was just un believable and it all happened like just when i i mean i wasn't even really over how mind-blowing rage for order was because that was like early summer yeah and then it was like all of a sudden operation mind crime is in my hands and and so you know my mind was effectively blown for like two years <laughs> and then i went back and picked up the warning in my freshman year of high school and got accustomed to that. But, but Joe, the thing that's crazy is that because of that, I don't know that, that I, I mean, I always liked the warning, but I never really until all these years later and, and like rage operation, mind crime and empire are just ingrained into my like musical DNA. And now I go listen to the warning and even some tracks on the EP those works are derivative of those first two efforts. Like, yeah, yeah. They're they, li they're, there's literally direct lifts almost from some of the songs in those epic albums. So as much as it is an amazing arc that they've had in that short period of time, it really is a, it was all there to start with. Rage for Order and Operation Mindcrime. Rage for Order, what sounds like, if, if there's something like successful, there'll be like a lot of bands that like, try to copy it. Like take Van Halen, there's Van Halen. And then there was like a whole eighties movement that were like, you know, blown away by Eddie and David Roth and the whole thing. And everyone tried to be Van Halen. Reach for order. It stands alone. It's just like this rock by itself. There's nothing 
like it that came before and then nothing even like operation Mindcrime is like a total right turn from rage for water so I mean, there, there's like and it's like this brilliant album that just it's it's literally an island there's just like this movement within the album that has such a distinct sound like the keyboards and the, the the pulsating keyboards and all this other stuff that's going on and and it just like boom okay we're done we're gonna go on to the next thing not only did they just go on to the next thing no one else really followed them which was is kind of cool because it's not like we heard a bunch of you know crappy stuff that was you know trying to rip it off but i i, I think that well then operation mind crime really did the same thing i mean that was its own island too but it was it was a different one there's just a lot of anomalies with this era of, of Queensryche that is, is striking to me. It's just too bad that those aliens didn't depart Queensryche with a better sense of fashion for Rage for Order. <laughs> <laughs> so so have, you, have you looked on the wikis about that? Because I kind of peeked ahead and the, you know, there's so much to this and you don't know how much of it is retconned and how much of it is real, but... Very specifically, the aesthetic of the band in Rage for Order is pinned solely on the record label. Mm. Wow, okay. I feel like I may have remembered hearing that in, in a documentary I watched eons ago. It's, it's a pretty drastic change because that is also an island, right? Their, their fashion sense around Rage for Order is nothing like it was before and nothing like it ever was after. Right. Agreed. Although, listen, I, I mean, there was something rather cool about dressing up in all that gothic robe, long robes, standing on that big red staircase. I mean, as crazy and as silly as it looked, it was also kind of badass at the same it, time. I, and and I, need, <laughs> I need to look at when, when Rage for Order came out and when The Lost Boys came out, because I want to say there's a very shared aesthetic uh, but between those two things, and I don't know what the relationship is. And so I also happen to have, and I mentioned that I bought this, I have the Super Duper Deluxe Empire Edition. Oh, wow. <laughs> I also have the... <laughs> I also have the Super Duper Deluxe Operation Mindcrime Edition. But... Tom is giggling like it's Christmas Day. <laughs> Joe, I, I love you. You just, you never, you never disappoint. You just, we're just like kids in a candy store. I'm telling you, I love it. So one of the best things about this is there's there's a little DVD in in the Empire set called Building Empires, and mm. it's this little this little video montage throughout the band's career up until the Empire tour, and. It is just absolutely priceless for any number of reasons. The one thing that really strikes me about that, watching the video, because the, there are a couple of different interspersed interview segments. It's like Wilton, DeGarmo, and Tate, like walking through the streets of Seattle or sitting somewhere and, and talking. It's so telling because DeGarmo and Wilton aren't even in the same neighborhood. They're talking over each other. They're talking about different things. One will say something. The other will give them a look like, what the fuck? I'm talking about this. You know, it is amazing. I'll bring this up 
next episode when we get to Rage for Order. But I'm, I'm getting to, to something here because what doesn't really translate in the pictures from Rage for Order in terms of the aesthetic is the sheer mass and shape of hair on top <laughs> of Tate's head. Uh. It is stunning. Absolutely <laughs> gravity defying i don't know how that is and it's really really something to see it's so good i'm going to have to like take a picture of the tv screen when he's in profile and we're gonna have to post it on facebook or something because it is phenomenal (laughs) nice and you know since i Let's let's lay out what we're doing here, because for those, you know, regular Palaver listeners who are, you know, thinking I'm not tuning into a heavy metal podcast. That's right. You're not. We have made the agreement amongst ourselves to cover what we here at the Palaver consider the core sequence. That would be the EP, the warning, Rage for Order, Operation Mindcrime, Empire and Promised Land. That's it. After that. It's not, I'm not going to say overly bad things about Queensryche. I'm just going to say I have no interest in palavering about Queensryche after that point. All right, I, I want to say something real quick. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. But most of the, whether it's online or magazines, will sort of title Queensryche as, as prog metal. So, I mean, we're, yep. A, we're not like out yeah, of left field. We have yep. talked about things before that were right. that were less prog than 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 you Queensryche. Make the argument that um, King's X is less prog than Queensryche for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, With the exception all, of Gretchen goes to Nebraska, but that's a different. Perhaps. Okay. Okay. Before we get into the songs, I just want to say like a little bit of a an overview. I, I sort of had a a Queensryche awakening this week, and it sort of stemmed from last week. Joe Ken and I were at the end of the episode. And we were talking about what we're going to be talking about this week. And I think Ken was reading off the names of the albums. And there was a little bit of a discrepancy about the self-titled Queensryche. You're just breaking up, Tom. It's almost like your, your internet connection's just a little bit like... Tom, can you say this? Machines have no conscience. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so I went back and listened to the 2013 Queensryche album, and I really was enjoying it much more than the the second one. And I was almost mad at myself for not listening to it prior. Um, so I went back and and looked up some names from 2013, and I realized that James Barton, who previously mixed and engineered Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime and Empire also uh, produced this album. It's not like the, the, the first album that you would think it would be from like a new version of the band being that, okay, now there's a new um, singer. And what I found out that that was like the last time that we really hear Scott Rockenfield in, you know, play in the band and what he had decided to do I don't know for sure, but there's also sort of pending health issues, but he is, he was really into sound design and scoring for film. And he really wanted to get more into that. 
But this album really had a lot of that Scott Rockenfield influence, not just with the drums, but there's just a lot of interesting keyboard sounds and sound design that we sort of heard more back in the day. It's not as watery as anything that we heard in the early 2000s. But I bring that up, Joe, because I think we should just at least listen to the last couple. How many bands just sort of like fizzle they go down 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 and then they just sort of like you know they're, they're like mockeries of themselves and i i honestly think that these last couple albums you know the verdict certainly being one of them and the queen's right 2013 are worth mentioning and i feel like it makes me feel good that because we're gonna be hyping these guys up so much deservedly with with all these early albums And it just makes me feel good that there's a happy ending here at the end of the tunnel. So tonight, our job is to cover the self-titled EP and then the first full-length offering, The Warning. Now, Ken, at this point in the show, we would normally refer to the timeline of progressive rock. However, I don't know how we want to deal with this tonight. Do Do we do a prog timeline do we do a metal timeline how do we deal with this ken truly we we come from the prog world where the wikis are in chronological order in a chart when you look at the wikipedia timeline of heavy metal the each year is organized alphabetically i I, i'm gonna have to start an account and fix that it's just breaking my heart i just I, i i can't even put my thoughts together and instead let me propose to you if there were more hours in the day and more Tuesday nights in the year, and if we could really do whatever floated our boat in the palaver without consequences and without hours editing, imagine if we, just in the same fashion that we alternated between Fish and Peter Gabriel, could you imagine if we alternated between Iron Maiden and Queensryche? <laughs> Wow. Imagine that. <laughs> let 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 me humor you. April 1980, the Iron Maiden album. February 1981, Killers. March 1982, The Number of the Freaking Beast. September 1983, Queensryche self-titled. And it would have a very kind of similar feel to what we just did in our our, our previous uh, segment. I'm not suggesting we actually follow that because um, we're not going to just a tease. Can you tease? We, 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 <laughs> but, but Tom, Tom, realistically, you would have to be on every episode. This would be an entire year of our lives if, if we did this, but um, yeah, I, I was a huge Maiden fan. I got to see that power slave tour whenever that was power slave would have been released in 84. I knew that take hold of the flame was different. I really love Take Hold of the Flame um, and still do to this day. But that that original EP and all the tracks I heard on Metal Shop, like Winning the Reich, did not absolutely bowl me over. I, I have to admit, it wasn't until Rage that I was truly captivated by the band. Cool. Paul, I don't have a recollection of playing cards at my house, but I, I just love the way you tell that story. <laughs> that I mean... <laughs> Are we in the kitchen? It sounds like a kitchen table, kind of a Friday. Yeah, night. We, we were we were uh, in that in that your townhouse in Chalfont, like 
your family room was like down the steps. Oh we yeah. And we were in the kitchen ta- like eating excellent. table. Yeah. Listening with the, yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. 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 Okay. I remember we had the upright piano Yeah. in that area back there. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. So um, before you go to the particular show, I- I'll just get this out of the way now. A lot of those albums that we loved in the time of the EP and the warning, they all fucking sounded the same. All it was like the same Jackson and ESP and Charvel guitars going through the same Marshall or whatever transistor amps guys were using. I mean, seriously, everything from Motley Crue to Rat to Dawkin, it, it all pretty much was the same sound, same guitar sound, same drum sound. And I think that's one of the things. You know, like you've said it perfectly, Ken, you knew Take Hold of Flame was different, right? There, there was something about that song that permeated the, the field of noise. But a lot of shit really did sound the same. And, and it was a lot like trying to get to Iron Maiden, I think. I, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. So the particulars, the Queensryche EP was released in September of 1983 on the, I guess it was the homegrown label, 206 Records produced by Queensryche. Um, and Neil Kernan is credited with uh, producing track five on the reissue, which is Prophecy. The personnel, and it's interesting the way that this is credited. And I meant to look, oh, actually we'll get into this because we'll get into this after we get uh, we get through this. But on the wikis, the personnel are credited with Jeff Tate as lead vocals, Michael Wilton on lead guitar. Chris DeGarmo is credited with rhythm guitar, backing vocals, and lead on Queen of the Reich and The Lady Wore Black. Eddie Jackson, bass and backing vocals, and Scott Rockenfield on drums. The EP, the original EP, was Queen of the Reich, Knight Rider, Blinded, and The Lady Wore Black. The 1988 reissue included The Prophecy. The 2003 remastered edition, which I have, has those five tracks plus a whole host of live tracks, which are absolutely brilliant in showcasing the energy of a young band who's getting their act together and knows they have some good stuff. It is a pleasure to listen to. Uh, Queensryche is the self-titled debut EP by the American progressive metal band Queensryche, released independently in September 1983 through 206 Records and reissued later that same year through EMI America. A remastered edition was reissued in 2003 through Capitol Records. Not very informative, but there you go. The Warning was released September 7th, 1984, It was produced by James Guthrie, who has an extensive Pink Floyd resume, released Mm -hmm. on the label EMI America. The wikis now credit Jeff Tate on lead vocals, Chris DeGarmo on guitar, calling out lead guitar on Take Hold the Flame and background vocals, Michael Wilton, guitar, lead guitar on Warning and background vocals, Eddie Jackson, bass and background vocals, and Scott Rockenfield on drums. The track listing is Warning, On Force, Deliverance, No Sanctuary, NM156, 
take hold of the flame before the storm, child of fire, and roads to madness. Now, there was one interesting little tidbit on the wikis, and that is the original unreleased track listing for the warning, which consists of NM156, On Force, No Sanctuary, Deliverance, Take Hold of the Flame, Before the Storm, Child of Fire, Warning, and Roads to Madness. So if you want to have a fun time, contemplate that in terms of tracking that album. The Warning is the first studio album by American progressive metal band Queensryche, released on September 7, 1984, and reissued on May 6, 2003, with three bonus tracks. In 2019, Metal Hammer ranked it as the 13th best power metal album of all time. Now, I went wow. to that list, and I don't know anything on that list other than Queensryche's The Warning, so I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but there you have it. When we hatched this scheme to do Queensryche, I immediately, as I often do, went to 1001, I'm sorry, the revised and updated edition of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. And I was very, very disappointed to see that no Queensryche albums make that list. That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I mean, there have been some questionable decisions for that book, but that that goes beyond the pale. (laughs) (laughs) It does go beyond the pale, Paul. I agree with you 100%. However, it turned out I never owned a CD copy of the EP. What I remembered having, because we all know how great my memory is, I owned a cassette version of this. And so I had to source a CD. So I went and I bought the the remastered edition. And so, Joe, I, I'm, I'm just trying to interrupt you, but I, I do need to know, where are you sourcing all of this material? Because I didn't find too much on either Jeff Tate's or Queen's Rex website. Are you just going to Amazon or whatever? Or? No, I, I mean, I know you want to go to Amazon. But I would not like go to Amazon. The Joe Beauclair equivalent of Amazon? Would be eBay. <laughs> okay. So there are some very hyperbolic words written about the EP that I would like to share with you all. The first comes is a quote from Jeff Tate on the opening on the uh, the the first panel of this booklet. In the summer of 1981, I had had my cards read at a medieval renaissance gathering in the deep forest of in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. The tarot said that I would soon come in contact with people and music that would set me on a life path. By springtime, I was writing with Queensryche, and an interesting chemistry was developing. The EP is the beginning of the path that was predicted, and the first scribbling in a musical diary of personal development and discovery. Ooh. Wow. Pretty heavy stuff, right? Uh, Hyperbolic. Very hyperbolic. Now. He was band surfing. He would have broken through with whoever broke through. He was in three bands at the time, and they all wanted him to be the lead singer, and this was the one that just happened to do it. If I may take a few moments and read a a lengthy excerpt here. Hmm. 
It all started in 1981 with The Mob, a tightly knit group of friends playing covers of mostly British metal, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, and the like, around their hometown of Seattle. But they were less than thrilled with their frontman, and guitarist Chris DeGarmo convinced locally renowned singer Jeff Tate to join them for some shows with the hope that the situation would become a permanent arrangement. While Tate enjoyed the experience, he felt somewhat confined by the lack of self-expression inherent in any cover band. His band at the time, Myth, which also featured guitarist Kelly Gray, who would later play with Queensryche, was writing its own material, while The Mob was not. Moreover, Tate was more interested in progressive rock than the basic metal that The Mob was focused on. But Tate and DeGarmo stayed in touch, and when DeGarmo and his bandmates had their own original tunes to record a year later, they called on Tate once again. He was sufficiently impressed to agree to record with the band on the condition that they test the waters first by writing a song together. The result was The Lady Wore Black, one of the four songs which not only constituted the band's first demo, but also its first major label release. There are very few bands who can truthfully claim that a major label released their first demo. I mean, how good is that, right? Well read, well read, Joe. <laughs> yes. Seriously, imagine you are you're like schlepping all your gear down to your buddy's basement, and you're like playing Judas Priest covers and Iron Maiden covers, and like your other guitar player goes, "Yo, a buddy's gonna come over and and sing for us tonight." <laughs> it's fucking Jeff Tate. <laughs> Uh, uh. I would love to hear Jeff Tate's and the mob's version of the trooper. Yeah, really. And flight of Icarus. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And run to the Hills. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, yeah, that's our confession, Paul. We recruited you to sing those songs. (laughs) Yes. in my boyish voice way back then. (laughs) So if we if we talk about this EP, right? So we have we have the four songs. We have um, Queen of the Reich, Night Rider, um, Blinded, and the Lady Wore Black. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. Singing "See You in Hell," my friend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, am, am I obligated to put in a snippet of that into the episode? No, you now? are. You are not. You are not. <laughs> You know, but uh, okay, and maybe we'll we'll save some of that for for the warning because I don't want to blow my whole wad um, all at once here. I, I think when you start out with the Queen of the Reich, right there, there's a healthy nod to Maiden and or Priest here, but I, you know, there are some things that separate them, and maybe I'm wrong. Is is Jeff Tate already a a defining aspect of the band? Does he separate Queensrÿche from? Others of the time? I think so. Specifically on the EP? Yes. As, I mean, first thing you ever hear out of Queensryche, is Jeff Tate something different from everything? Because Paul made the point. Yeah. Every other heavy metal record that we heard to that point sounded the same in terms of, you know, guitar and drum sound I, and everything else. I, I will just submit that I, I, I don't think I listen to the EP more than, you know, with any attention whatsoever until the empire tour. 
and they played the lady wore black on that tour mm-hmm. and i was like oh fuck that's a great song i'm gonna go back and listen to that up until that point it was just jeff tate singing these ridiculous high notes that's <laughs> all uh, all i would have remembered from from the ep i think he was 100 percent differentiating that band I, on the ep and even the warning I, I don't think Jeff Tate is wholly original. I think his, I think R- Rob Halford, Bruce Dickinson, and I'll say Ronnie James Dio, I think come screaming through. I see Queensryche as a second generation to, to all of those guys, right? I just feel like all of those bands that were coming into their own in those early to mid eighties, like the only thing that differentiated Queensryche f- from a sound perspective was Jeff Tate. I think ultimately there was more in there, but I don't think any of that came through until Rage for Order. Um, that's just that's just me. I will submit to the group because again, I had the, the joy of watching this Building Empires video. While Jeff Tate may be differentiated vocally, he was struggling in the visual department. And I'm, I'm, I don't know how to show it here. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's not a good look for anybody. I mean, and, if that's what got you chicks in 1983, Jesus. And, and, you know, I, we all know that, you know, being the least musical in the group, I fixate on, you know, stupid things. So one of the things that fascinated me about these videos, so this this was from the video for Knight Rider, which was apparently the first nice. video they did. Even back then, the very first video they ever did, while it wasn't the full drum kit, Rockenfeld's um, cymbal booms were still welded chains at that point. nice so that's he, awesome he had the chains from the very beginning the guitars that wilton and DeGarmo used were just bizarre absolutely spectacular and and they had in in this video they went and they they had this they joked about the video for queen of the reich which you know as DeGarmo describes it they were given this great script that had absolutely nothing to do with the song at all and they only showed a very small portion of it. It's hilarious. And but it, it's funny because in in the video for Knight Rider, and I think it's Prophecy, and maybe I I forget what else they got on there. But a lot of these early videos, every song has both Wilton and DeGarmo soloing, which is kind of fun. Mm. So they they kind of trade back and forth. But you know, so Queen of the Reich establishes the name. It's it's kind of fun. Um, Knight Rider is great because you got this spooky antagonist. Um, it does sound a little bit like Before the Storm, and Jeff Tate proves that he oh. can screech like no one else. So Knight Rider, go, I I think goes all the way to speak in Operation Mindcrime. Yeah, I mean the the soul the guitar solo is almost. Almost the rhythm of the guitar solo is almost a direct lift. It's wonder, and I mean, and I mean all of this in the most wonderful way possible. But I mean, think about and here again, and I don't think this is anything any of us would have ever thought, right? The Pink Floyd influence. How many times do we talk about Roger Waters or 
or David Gilmour, most most often Roger, you know, it seemed like they were trying to write song A and they wrote song A prime and then it took mm-hmm. them five years to get to, you know, what they wanted. Right. Yeah. And, and credit Queensryche for being savvy enough to say, hey, remember that that lick we had? That Why don't we put that in here? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I think, and you know, who else does that? Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Blinded is just super heavy and I, I kind of love it. But the Lady Wore Black is just this is the one that really kind of is the is the the road sign and says mm. this is where these guys are going to go. You might want to pay attention. It's almost one of the things where if it had proper recording and in the in the booklet for the remaster, they tell the story about the guy who did the recording for that. Apparently, you know, they they did the same thing that you guys would do. They would they'd go into the studio late at night when no one else was there because it was, you know, dirt cheap or whatever. And the guy they had recording it told them he knew how to record music and he didn't. And Ah. So that's, you know, partially why the EP sounds the way it did or does. And they explained that when they were doing this remaster, there was a a conversation about, you know, do we remaster it? Do we re-record it? Do we fix the recordings? And the decision was to just simply do a remaster and leave the recordings as they were with all the limitations that they had. But it's an interesting little story that they tell about this record. And it's I'm glad they did because it's it's so wonderful in its rawness and and for what it is, right? And it in my mind, you know, the 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 EP and the warning paint a picture of Queensryche as just a bunch of gritty, hardworking musicians that are just letting it all out there and busting their balls to record and perform their music i mean on all these remasters or whatever there's there's some great live performances of some of these songs that are really fun and those i'm glad that they they kept the ep as is and you know and i think that the lady wore black is such a like you said signpost and you listen to that on the you know the live version of that from like the empire tour and it's it's epic it it, it's it fits it fits with everything else they've done it's it's not like it's oh here's an old you know, song that doesn't fit, it fits right in with everything. It's it's wonderful. I think it's good that they didn't try to re-record it because it's just part of, it's a slice of life. It's it's part of yeah. their history. We've given George Lucas a lot of grief for redoing <laughs> the Star Wars trilogy, or at least I have, yes, um, you know, exactly. and, you know, exactly. it's the same thing. Yeah, It's yep. the same thing. Yeah, and I think that, it's just, it's part of the charm. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you listen to it, you're like, oh my God, there's a lot of reverb on Jeff Tate's voice here. But yeah, it's just, it's just part of the time. It's a sign of the times. In a way, it takes me back, right? Yeah. I, I it, it takes me back to playing street hockey and listening to cassettes on the boom box. Right. And, and hanging out in my room, listening, like you're saying, Ken, listening to Metal Shop. You know, that's, it's great. So, Metal Shop was a part-time job. I mean, just, 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 Staying awake. <laughs> yeah. Getting <laughs> Buying up for blind church. tapes earlier in the day and staying awake all night. Yeah. Getting getting up for church on Sunday morning after filling up a 90 minute go. cassette of, of songs from Metal Shot the night before. Classic. <laughs> wow. And so not only was was the, the band's sound evolving so quickly, and, and I don't exactly know. I have the impression the live in Tokyo performance, and I don't know if it was a video 
it doesn't appear as a live record anywhere, um, but it, it clearly seemed to occur between the EP and the warning. But Jeff Tate had already went from being whatever it was he was with the Knight Rider video into doing a heavy metal Simon LeBon imitation with nice. Han Solo pants. <laughs> Not really sure what all is going on here. There's there's just there's a lot. But the interesting thing about that is in the back of the stage, they had this weird sort of drawing of what would appear to be a queen's crown. But the very first. Ooh, the wow. very first appearance of the Tri-Rike logo. Nice. Which, you know, when you talk about Queensryche, at, certainly in the era in which we are going to talk about Queensryche, that logo becomes almost integral to everything they do. Once it appears on Rage for Order, it shows up on every album cover between then through Promised Land. And this is stupid and has nothing to do with the music. I just, I think it's a spectacular logo. And I am utterly and stupidly fixated on the way that the band integrated it into everything. Every guitar has it. It's all over mm. the stage set. It's it's in the drums. It's it's like anywhere you could stick a tri-rike, they did. And you know, they did it in different ways and it was spectacular. And I just, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, it's fantastic branding. So right before I went to college, I was at the shore. I don't know if it was Ocean City, Maryland or if it was Ocean City, New Jersey, but I was in one of those surf shops where they have make your own t-shirts and buy all your shit. And I bought a giant red Rage for Order flag, like banner type thing with the Tri-Rike on it. And I hung it up in my college dorm room in my college apartment and had it. And I think I even had it hanging in my room post-college. Nice. And I'm guessing that, you know, when I moved out right before I got married to my parents' house, I retired the red Tri-Rike flag. So over Labor Day, Mike and I played a gig down in Ocean City and we were, we were, it was basically a private party at one of our friends shore homes. And we stayed there the whole weekend. And on the Saturday, Mike and I went for a bike ride up on the boardwalk in the morning. We parked the bikes, we locked them up and we went into the surf shop and the surf shop was six times the size. I remember that it was, and I was walking around and all I was looking for was that it was another giant red Rage for Order flag. And if I would have found it, I would have bought it. There was so much fun stuff that I could have bought. But if I if they would have had a Rage for Order with the with the black trireike on the red flag, I would have bought it. It'd be hanging up behind me right now. That's awesome. <laughs> could it still be in like an attic somewhere? Or is it no? I don't no. think it could be. Actually, there's a bunch of shit in my my room over here that I haven't opened since my last move, but I really don't think it survived getting married. It happens. So that moves us into the warning. And, you know, again, we I, I hopped on this train. Paul, you hopped on this train. Tom, I'm not I'm assuming you hopped on during Rage as well. I credit Dan for my I mean, and then maybe 
Dan credits you guys. I don't know who was the or, I think this was originator the, of all this, but yeah. I mean, Dan, yeah. I remember it was one of our choir trips and I was, we were on a bus together and Dan played, we had the warning and rage for order. And he's like, check these out. And I, I was like, listen to both of them going like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, it's just like listening to, you know, the warning and rage for order. Yeah, it was just like, you know, game changer right there. So I, I'm not sure where that was compared to when you guys first heard it, but I know that Dan was the one who introduced me to Queensryche. Well, then then certainly for me, like I said, I came in pretty much at around the same time Paul did. So late Rage for Order after everyone had been talking about it for months and right before Mind Crime, and I had to go back to the warning and it just you know, it, it never hit me quite as strongly as as those two other albums did, um, just because it well, sounded how, differently. Yeah, I mean, how could it though? Because like, you know, like Tom said, like Rage for Order is is singular. Yeah, in everything about it, and 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 so is Mind Crime. When you start there and then go to Warning, I mean, the Warning is uh, is awesome. I, I fucking love it. But you can't deny the fact that from a production and sound perspective, it's like tooth and nail by Dokken, right? It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just thin and, and like, you know, it's got that trebly reverb and they have, and, and the thing that's great about it is that they have some like really stupid like snare effects like those pop shots on the snare that just today sound just it makes your skin crawl but you have to just absolutely respect the fact that then they were they were like yeah let's do that's di- that's a little different it makes us sound just a little different than tooth and nail right mm. i mean but but overall it just has that same aesthetic as every other album that was coming out that year so do you – I read this in the past few days, and I can't – I couldn't find it today because I can't remember shit. It was probably on the wikis. But somewhere I read a story or a quote by Tate about this record, and he absolutely despises this record. And I'll, paraf- oh. I'll paraphrase, and my apologies to any hardcore Queens Queensryche fans – for us not having our lore in as good a shape as we normally do. But what as I recall, we normally do. <laughs> what, what I re- Yes, our what, lore is always spot on here. It's a very funny story, as I recall, because, you know, Tate very blithely says it was, how does he describe it? It was the first time he had seen a label actively participating in in stifling the creative process, I think is about how he put it. Huh. He, he then goes on to claim, you know, well, we had run $300,000 over budget in recording and the record label took the recordings and had someone mix it and we didn't have any input. And the guy they got to, to mix the album knew nothing about how a heavy metal album should sound. And so it sounds like shit and we all hate it, is huh. essentially what Jeff said. I, I, how much I money... Would- $300,000. There's no wait. <laughs> that was a lot of money back then. Yeah, that, well, exactly. That, That's why I think it's so funny. 
Well, that's that sounds like that's three hundred thousand over budget. That's not the budget. That's that's, that's even like, over the budget. They must have had like expensive drugs and catering because that album does not sound like it was three hundred thousand dollars over budget. No, no. I I would argue that the like person a, who mixed okay. that album okay. knows here, exactly what a heavy metal album here, should sound like here, that year because okay, it sounds I've, like every other one out there. Let me let me. I've it is on the wikis. In 2013, lead singer Jeff Tate explained the band's dissatisfaction with the album's mix. Quote, the only time I ever experienced, parentheses, a record label restricting creative freedom, end parentheses, was during the recording of Queensryche's first album, The Warning. We went $300,000 over budget and the label took the record out of our hands and gave it to someone else to mix. That the guy that mixed that the album had no clue what Queensryche was. He never listened to hard rock music and didn't take input from anyone in the band. He just mixed it according to how he thought it should sound. No one in the, in the band could listen to that record. We all hated it. Hmm. And quote. I'm guessing I'm guessing that guy was a huge fan of Tooth and Nail. But, I'm just gonna say. Uh, but, but I think to Ken's point, you know, in in 1983 or four, three hundred thousand dollars. Over budget. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. For, for essentially a band that no one really knows about at that point in time. <laughs> well, I, actually, <clears throat> let me remind everyone recording studios charged a lot more back in the day when they didn't have the um, competition of home studios. So, I mean, like, they, these, these studios were charging actually more than they would even charge now almost. I mean, like insane amounts of money. So it, it is hard to believe, but I mean, the amount that they were charging was ridiculous as well. Yeah. It just, it seems like an awful lot of money to go over budget, but whatever yeah, the case for, may be. For what you have. Yeah. Can we talk about what's good about this album? I think we need to. Oh, I mean, everything else, basically. Oh, I mean, fundamentally, the lyrics the melodies and the vibe is epic to me. When I go back and listen to this, it's like an old friend. It's like parchment paper. It's like a piece of my history. Ken, I'm so glad you called out the lyrics because in our pre-show, we were expressing a certain amount of, you know, unease with the lyrical ability of another band of which we speak regularly here on the Palaver. But the lyrics here, and I think the lyrics throughout this sequence of Queensryche we're going to talk about, I think are exceptional. Now it's kind of funny because if progressive rock has Hobbit shit, heavy metal has satanic shit. And I think Queensryche really blends those two together exceptionally well. Yeah. Now there will be some moments during the empire discussion where mm, we're going to go really guys. Well, a little bit. A little but, bit, but, but on yeah, the whole, I, 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 on the whole, I agree with you. So, so when I listen to the warning, I feel like you guys are in the car with me. When I'm sitting there going, <laughs> "Before the storm, before the storm, before the storm," <laughs> I feel like all you guys are in the car with me, singing along. Like it, 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 it's, it is like it's like going home. It's, it's wonderful. That's awesome. I'm so glad you said that, Paul, because I feel the same way. I'm, I'm, all, I'm just thinking about, yeah, I mean, it has such a distinct sound. It just, it really just brings you back. And you know what? what's weird? Like, I was never into, like, 
the Transformers or Power uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers or any of that. But like, I think this was our Power Rangers, like <laughs> or, or like Transformers. It was like a geeky kid thing, like a boy thing, and it was like part of our growing up. And we associate this with our friends and what we were doing. And it's yeah. so funny that you bring that up because that's what I think about when I listen to this is uh, you guys. <laughs> Love it. I, you know, some some of the highlights from my notes and on force, second, second song in, and it's already like pushing all of my buttons. What are my three non sequitur musical triggers? Anyone remember? Anyone? Orchestra bells. There you go. Oboe. Yep. What's the third one? Think um, George Michael older. Oh, pipe organs. Muted trumpet. Nice try. M- muted <laughs> George George Michael. George yeah. Michael. Older. Older. A lot of muted trumpet. Anyway. Okay, sorry. So, so here we have orchestra <laughs> chimes right out of the gate. And, you know, fucking love it. And Ken, to your point, you know, I was going through all the lyrics and there's there's one line in in on force that just gets me. And I, I don't know exactly know why, but I absolutely love it. The force all around us, we feel the twisted contusions of hatred will finally reveal. Fucking mm. a right, Bubba. Go for it. I didn't realize until just this moment, it, the soul creator, the soul Musical creator and lyric creator of this song is Chris DeGarmo. It's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, guys, there's something in the song that I, I just don't get. And help me out here. But the song is in force. But when he sings it, he adds a syllable. Like, and I, I don't, is it something I'm missing? Is enforcer. It's enforcer with an R, actually. Okay, so in the lyrics, he says enforcer. That's that's that the you... lyrics that I saw. Okay. Um, let me check. Let me check if the lyrics are actually in the thing. Oh, this is a beautiful. This is yeah. A, what percolated on the web does say enforcer. A beautiful picture right there. You can't you can't get wrong with that. Nice. Uh, there are there are there are no lyrics in here. There's there's nothing. But yeah, the the on the uh, on the web it says enforcer. Okay. All right. Well, that that makes a lot of more sense i'm not sure if this is the track or if it's deliverance that is that has the the melody from a sweet sister mary in it and and force there is after the first verse instead of tripping over to the chorus right it holds out and goes into and, and he holds out a note into the second verse and i think that that is like a hallmark of the songwriting that we are going to see from Queensryche. It's one of my favorite things, whether it's in Enforce or Deliverance, I don't know. It's just another example of what is present here is just going to be refined and expanded upon in later albums. It, it's it's more than just a typical growth. It's, it's literally, like you said before, Joe, it's like they're trying to write that next bit, you know, but they're, they're writing this one instead. No, it's, it's, it's spot on. So what I find interesting, and, and again, when you talk about the, uh, the potential tracking of this, this album, but third, third track, as we got the album, No Sanctuary, this is the first really noticeable element of sound design. 
you know, now we're going to get this. And nobody in in our experience used sound design like Pink Floyd. And I think, you know, Queensryche is going to go on and utilize that, dare I say, almost better than Pink Floyd. I mean, when you talk about some of the sound design elements in Mindcrime, it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. indescribably exceptional. Yeah. And they're very story driven. And uh, I really appreciate the fact that um, they, they treat story like, like writers do or even screenwriters do. I mean, they, they have respect for story and they keep the sound design. They don't, wank around as much as maybe other bands do. I mean, they, they, as far as sound design, they stick to really what, what the story is. And I think they've always done that. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think, you know, the, the backing vocals in No Sanctuary are totally spectacular. Oh my God. The backing oh. vocals all through this. And, and I'm assuming it's Dugarmo, but, um, there's more than, than one person. Um, this is the first time that the bonus tracks on the streaming services have really brought me to a new understanding of the material in the first place. If, if you look at the self-titled EP as it's released in the streaming services, they're previewing in Japan a lot of the material from the warning. Right. And, and the backing vocals are supreme even before they went into the studio for the mm. warning. Yeah, it's it's so good. And, 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 you know, that's one of the things that I think they're going to leverage off of moving forward, being able to utilize just everything that they have, the voices. And I don't know, does Wilton ever sing or is it just DeGarmo? I think Wilton sings. I think Wilton sings I too. Think, I think they all. Yeah, they I think all Eddie Jackson on the vocals sing. and a lot, a lot of the, the, the gang vocals and uh, yeah, last track, Roads to Madness, I think. Just about everyone is, is doing those gang vocals. Yeah. So, you know, they, they're going to leverage off of all of that. And and so, but again, here we have the first example of sound design. Now, when we move on to the next track, NM156, mm. this, is, this is fascinating for a number of reasons. Because for whatever reason, and the, the parallels that I'm coming across, it's because I was just listening to the quest, but the parallels between the quest and, and Queensryche are stunning. I can't wait to hear this. Well, because <laughs> NM156 is the first time that Queensryche expresses their sort of fascination with AI. And between Arc of Life and the quest, certain members of the band, yes, also seem to have a fascination with AI, but in ways that are not nearly as pleasing to me. Yeah. Well, machines. So no the members conscience. of yes are, are, are like, to me are commenting upon the, the everyday nature of, of AI in our lives. Right. It's almost like a commentary. It's here. It will be left for the future generations to listen to and say, Oh Yeah. Uh, there, there was AI in 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 these years. The future generations listen to NM one five six. They're gonna shit their pants. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Yes, yes, they will. I, and and I think I think you know as always, Paul. That's exceptionally well stated. I just I would rather want to shit my pants than listen to the other thing. So would I. So would I. <laughs> this song, on its own, is wonderful, and yet it branches off and gives us screaming and digital and surgical strike. And the next record. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So it's going to, it's going to sort of repeat itself. Did anyone else? And again, you know, if there are, if there are any younger listeners of the palaver wouldn't have caught this, but the sound of the dot matrix printer at the end just makes me laugh. Like there's no (laughs) tomorrow. I fucking love it. Here we are. We're progressive palaver. We started out with Marillion. We've done, Fugazi twice. Does anyone hear punch, punch, punch and not go, and Judy? Does anyone yes. do that? <laughs> I have that in my notes. I have that in my notes. Yep. You better believe it, Joe. You just have to. It's it's oh, just, yeah. it's what we do. Oh, my God. Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, Paul, you hit this on the head with um, uh, uh, talking about the Rage songs. NM156 is really... Uh, it sort of defuncts my my alien came aliens came down from outer space theory because this is the the song that sort of gives us a real hint of where we're going with rage for order absolutely nm156 is rush's signals to queen's reich's rage for order which is rush's power windows it's like Mm. the beginning of something and that they they didn't quite know it but then they they needed the next album to to finish it and do you mean it's very, do you mean rush's grace under pressure no rush's signals but grace under pressure is in between signals and power windows it is but because of the keyboard thing i i really okay. and we even talked about this okay okay there, there, there's a keyboard <laughs> connection with signals Man, we are really geeks. There's a keyboard. There's a keyboard connection with signals and uh, power windows. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but really the beginning of the sort of impetus of Rage for Order. So yeah, uh, and it's just a marvelous song. Yeah, you know, from there we go. Take hold of the flame, which is just uh, it's splooge worthy. Uh, there's no other way to say it. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. Um, you've got nothing to lose but everything to gain, and then you get those take hold. I just, I just there's so much to love there. Mm-hmm. And then previously mentioned before the storm, and again this was this was one of the things that I heard at band practice. Jay used to just love to go crazy on the on the kick drum and and sing that. Did, um, did we just like go through take hold the flame and like? I'm just, I'm just kind of wait. I'm wait. just I'm just running through my notes so I can shut up. I'm sorry and let you guys talk. All right, you know I I actually don't have all that much. You know, like I said, before the storm is is one of the things that sort of I knew from band practice because Jay seemed absolutely fixated on it, as I recall. Um, Child of Fire has you know this is one of those those places where. They're they're sort of melding in the devil shit because you you know if mm. you're going to be a heavy metal band you've got to have you know sort of devil imagery involved. 
What was the first song on side two? Was it NM156 or was it Take Hold the Flame? According to Wiki, it's Take Hold of the Flame. Yep. Okay. What a powerhouse side B. I yeah. mean, I mean, not not to diminish side one at all, but holy shit. Yeah. Take Hold of Flame, Before the Storm, Child of Fire, and Road to Madness? Yeah. Oh, my God. I owned a hairdryer when I would be listening to that those songs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Take Hold of the Flame has one of those moments that you just have to... Even if you you can't sing the note, you're just mimicking and you're just like wrapped up in it. And I had a moment in my car yesterday. I was driving to pick up my daughter from from school and I was driving to pick her up. So so I was by myself. I was listening to the warning. I was at a stoplight and I'm listening to Take Hold of the Flame. And it's right when, you know, you coming to the from the soft part to the heavier part and jeff tate you know goes nuts it's just like that yeah. heavy metal moment well i was at a stoplight and I'm, I'm singing along and we get to the part and i clench my fist i just i go crazy and i look over I look over and there's this Hispanic family looking at me and they're like, they're like glued to their window. <laughs> they're not laughing. They're like scared. They're like, they're, these kids, they're all just like looking at me like I'm in pain. Like what, what's wrong with this guy? And so I just was like, oh, I, I just waved to them. <laughs> and they were just, and they, they just stared at me like, like something was like not right. And then I drove off and I, I sort of like laughed about it, but you have, it's just like, it has one of those moments that are like, that's heavy metal. Like if there's, if you want to introduce, tell someone what, what heavy metal is, play them like those couple bars going into the heavy part of take hold of the flame. It is one of the most epic heavy metal moments from the eighties. I may not have a voice the night we record Rage for Order because there have been more than one one nights where I've just for whatever reason left work and I'm like I'm gonna fucking listen to Rage for Order on the on the ride home mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. next day I wake up and my voice is like nothing. It's painful to try to sing any of that stuff. It's and, unbelievable, and, and yet you're like physiologically compelled to try. Mm-hmm. You have to. Yeah. 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 And you the have best thing is, it. he fucking holds that note, right? It's like, it would be one thing if he held it and it just kind of faded off. But he held it, and then at the end, he gets, he gets a, a little vibrato. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, And then he just does. releases it, and it's like, fucking A! <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like nine counts in the studio recording. It's at least seven and a half counts, even in the live, when he's riffing on it. Truly amazing. If I had a nickel for every time I like could start a Jeff Tate song but not get past 30 seconds. Oh my God. Um I I, I do want to get musical with you guys and get rhythmic. We've kind of gone on to Before the Storm and Child of Fire, and I and I also want to think about Enforce, but 
these are the most epic 12-8 or triplet rhythms that I can think mm. of in metal. And Force and Child of Fire are pretty similar to me. Before the Storm is actually much at a much faster tempo, but it's still got an underlying three feel. Joe, you know how much I love threes. But it's ticka-ta-ticka-ta-ticka-ta-ticka-ta-ticka-ta-ticka-ta-ticka-ta. And I don't know that we actually had that. I don't think we actually grew up with... I'm not immediately thinking of an Iron Maiden song or a Dio song or an Ozzy song that was really quite that way. Queenstrike and Rockenfeld in particular seem to master that use of, uh, of, of, of triplets. We'll find it somewhere, but it's just not coming to me right now. But, but um, in Enforce, Before the Storm, and Child of Fire, just, just wicked, wicked groups of threes in that underlying rhythm. Mm. It's incredible. Ken, this past week, you were kind of gushing about Roads to Madness. Yes, I still do. Oh. I still absolutely do. Yeah. I had no idea what it was about and flipping through, you know, there are people just making stuff up. There are people claiming that, that Jeff Tate once said something about magic mushrooms. There are people who just love the song and like to talk on the internet, regardless of what it's about. For some reason, you know, the way I described this entire album the lyric sheet is on parchment paper for me there's something very epic and he's writing beyond his years he's a very young man together as a group they're all writing together beyond their their years and roads to madness really encapsulates that to me standing here waiting this grand transition i just universally like that how many times in our lives are we awaiting a grand transition and maybe it happens and maybe it doesn't but I'm here. I showed up for this moment. Make me awesome now. I'm 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 going somewhere. I'm doing what I was supposed to. I'm graduating. I'm doing this. Where's my grand transition in life? It's a story of a man waiting for something to happen and he doesn't recognize what's coming and he's just kind of prepared for the worst. One of the lines in Roads to Madness that really kind of resonated with me is the future is but past forgotten when you're on the roads to madness. I just mm. freaking love that. Absolutely spectacular. There's something about these lyrics in particular in this song that feels, for lack of a better phrase, the most prog to me. It makes me think of songs, certain songs by Kansas or Rush, you know, when you're talking about Xanadu or maybe perhaps The Wall from uh, left overture you know these, mm. these sort of yeah. these sort of inter inside journey songs um you know you know seeking knowledge and and where that leads you or where it doesn't lead you so there, there's just something about this song that that resonates with me in that regard and mm-hmm. yeah he says i and still i'm standing here I'm awaiting this grand transition. I'm a fool in search of wisdom, and I'm on the road to madness. Mm. I'm going to give a huge salute to Black Sabbath right now. And I don't particularly listen to a lot of Sabbath. I was an Aussie kid. I was very much an Aussie kid. Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman, Randy Rhodes, the typical 80s Aussie kid. And the Black Sabbath was just the icing on the cake. Um, But there is something in that original group 
particularly Tony Iommi, where they just play an entirely different song in the middle of one song, like Iron Man. And, and, and they use the Iron Man trick here to get life out of the end of the song. They're just like, okay, we need a punk song at the end. And it's fucking amazing. Mm. It's fucking amazing. And yeah, I, I you know, the guys in Queensryche are brilliant, but, but they didn't invent this. I'm going to say that they're tapping in to that, that style that was really made famous by Black Sabbath. Children of the Grave goes in an entirely different friggin' song. Like mm. they just double time, let's go fast. And, and that's the trick that they use here. And I, I, I love it. And I think, I think that's what makes Queensryche prog. Uh, I think that's what makes Black Sabbath enough prog. Um, you know, occasionally be purple will do it or whatever, but, but just, just the balls and the musicianship to pull off a complete time change. That's so key to the genre. We rarely, you know, you brought it up a little bit here and we're talking about time changes and things like that, which obviously everyone's involved in. But we rarely talk drummers here on the Palaver. But I think I, both Tom and Ken, you, you both in the course of this episode have have invoked Scott Rockenfield and... I think he's integral to everything that is going on here. And I think he will continue to be so because there are some times when it's just like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times you can almost ignore the drums for lack of a better phrase, but there are certain drummers and certain times, certainly in Queensryche, um, where you can't. And, um, yeah, I just think it's brilliant. His I, use I, of the bell of the ride is really. Epic. Oh yeah. I, I, I have that somewhere. I must have I must have missed it, but I've I've got that very that very note. Yes. <clears throat> and, and and the flams that he does in Take Hold of the Flame when, when they're gearing up for the chorus. God, yeah. that should be required listening for every drummer, every at least every metal drummer. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say admittedly, I think because of of my entry into Queensryche, starting with Rage for Order and Operation Mindcrime and then coming back, I may not quite have appreciated Scott Rockenfeld, his performance in this and until now, you know, back in the day, I think I was so distracted by the lame guitar sound and Jeff Tate's ridiculous vocals. It's exceptional drumming. And I think I come more to realize that now than I did, you know, maybe way back when. Well, and, and, and what really kind of got me here, right? Because when you start, at the beginning with these bands, there's always one or two people that maybe is a little bit more musically advanced than everyone else in the group. You know, everyone's sort of learning yeah. as they go along. And, you know, again, I, I would not have ever thought this, but based on the way, again, that the wikis are credited, you know, it almost sounds like DeGarmo wasn't the tour de force that he would become two albums later at this yeah. point. And so, you know, maybe, maybe Scott was a little ahead of the curve. I don't know. Mm. And, and, yeah. you know, when you talk about comparing this to rage, I mean, I remember one of the things that, that, you know, was constantly mentioned about rage and, you know, we'll, we'll get into this and, and Jay went on. I mean, the drum sound on that album is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's, I, you know, it, 
so when you go back to even hearing quote unquote normal drums, it just, it, it doesn't impact you in quite the same way, even if the drumming itself is as good. Right. But we've covered two, uh, two recordings. We haven't maybe gone as in depth as we normally would. And quite frankly, I'm afraid of how much talking I'm going to have to do on the next <laughs> three four episodes of this uh but we'll we'll see where it goes but i i mean i think these two records are they're a an excellent snapshot of an outstanding band in their infancy they're they're figuring out what they can do they're you know they're they're learning how to do certain things they're learning what not to do in certain cases and they're they're trying to put the pieces together that is going to make them something that for me musically is going to stand the test of time mm. well said looking forward from wikipedia in support of the release of the warning queensrike went on a worldwide tour it's oh, 11 yeah. months during the american leg they were opening act for kiss for the animalized tour Iron Maiden on their 84 to 85 World Slavery Tour. In Europe, they opened for Dio on the Last in Line Tour, which would have been amazing. I, I wish I, I, I could have seen that. Uh, and they opened for Accept on the Metal Harp Tour. So what was on their mind coming off of this album and simultaneously composing <laughs> Rage for Order? Right. Wow. And that sort of leads into small palaver lore nugget here. I want to say we saw the Hysteria tour twice and both times, primarily for the opening act. First time being Queensryche, if I remember correctly. First time was actually... Or was it Tesla the first Tesla time? Tesla was the first time. Okay. I missed out on the second show, which we wanted to see... Queensryche. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, so we, I think you guys saw Queensryche. I, I missed them. I, yeah. I, I saw the Hysteria tour twice, primarily. I mean, and Hysteria is great, and we could do an episode on that sometime if we really, really. The tour was to. fucking awesome, too. The tour was awesome, and I loved it, but I bought both sets of tickets because I wanted to see the opening act, which Same. is kind of a weird thing to do. Yeah. Well, I saw Billy Squire in Blue Murder because I wanted to see King's X. So I think we all there did. There you go. And we all oh, we miss them. Why? Why do we miss them, Tom? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> I'll, You'll I'll never, never live that down, down, dude. You'll never live. No, down. that's for uh, sure. That, that that moment is burning my mind almost the same as the day you walked in with Operation Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was like, you didn't put them on the leash. You're like the leash. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up watching those episodes of Old Yellow where they just let him out, you know, and they're just like, no, oh, boy. <laughs> He'll come back when he's finished digging a hole in the back and and chasing the foxes or whatever. Did, does oh, anyone God. remember which show we were going to when I almost killed us on Street Road? That was... Uh, the oh, that was definitely Def Leppard. Okay, that that's was what hysteria. I thought. That was the first yeah. time when we saw him with yeah. Tesla, yeah. Yes. Again, you know, there aren't many things I remember, but I remember the heart stopping, look up, all red lights, slam on the brakes, 
slide into the left-hand turn lane, which thankfully was not occupied. Nothing happens. There's no crunch of metal. Light turns green. We all take off. I'm trying to get my body under control. And Tom <laughs> in the back seat going, we came this close to missing Def Leppard. <laughs> <laughs> Like, way to put it in perspective. <laughs> oh, man. But I digress. And and it is it is late on the East Coast. And so I, you know, I think I think we've we've started the, the Queensryche segment properly. I think we've we've set the table, as it were. And I am just I'm very curious to see how the, the gush fest is going to go for you know, the next few episodes. It'll oh be great. Oh my God. God. <laughs> uh, it's going to be insane. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, that's, that's what we have to look forward to next time. We will, we will cover the album from aliens. That is rage for order. So gentlemen, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the time this evening and look forward to, uh, to just losing our mind next week. <laughs> Can't wait. Cheers. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at Prague Paula on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Polaris is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. What I'm here to talk about. And, and you guys can, can my, I just my, listen my, to one hour and 36 minutes of us talking about our own podcast. <laughs> I don't think you have to make it quick. <laughs>